Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Today's episode features a ton of interesting content about optimal breakfast composition, glycine supplementation for tendons and ligaments, nutrient losses from cooking, muscle knots and trigger points, caffeine tolerance, and more. Plus, you'll question everything you thought you knew about Ant-Man and crabs. As always, we hope you enjoyed today's episode, but be sure to join our public Facebook group or our subreddit to join in on the conversation and let us know. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. I'm in a great mood. The weather's finally cooling off for fall and season three pushes forward. For today's episode, I am joined by a special temporary guest co-host by the name of Greg Knuckles. Greg, how are you doing today? Doing well. You know, to start things off, I don't want to start on a sour note, but if, I'm afraid I have to. Uh, little clarification. Um, I don't know if we want to make a segment for this, but if we did, it'd be called the errors or the corrections segment, maybe retractions. Um, anyway, uh, so in a previous episode, I cast doubt upon the idea that um, Bod Pod is the gold standard for body composition measurement. And someone in the subreddit that we have um, brought it to my attention. They actually found a pretty solid reference for it. It was the BodPod website uh, reinforcing that uh, it is the gold standard, uh, according to them. And as we know, given the robust consumer protections in America, there's no way that someone could ever advertise a claim that wasn't just 100% ironclad truth. Correct. Yeah. So... Uh, when you're wrong, you're wrong. Uh, come and clean. Uh, my apologies. We'll do better next time. Uh, so let's move on to some good stuff. We've got a good news segment and Greg, why don't you start us off? Uh, yeah. So my piece of good news is, uh, the governor of Colorado is pardoning about 2,700 people with low level nonviolent marijuana convictions. Now, Given what we've had to say about marijuana on the podcast previously, you might be wondering why this is in the good news segment. Uh, and, and it's probably not for the reason you're thinking. Basically, I think this is actually a big win for people who are opposed to marijuana because the problem is, uh, you know, folks with a good conservative family anti-marijuana values such as myself, we have, I will admit, been losing the culture war when it comes to marijuana. Uh, you know, people have been trying to put forward this bogus narrative that it's safe and, you know, doesn't lead to millions of overdose deaths per year, etc. Complete bullshit. And the thing is, up until pretty recently, the nanny state was pushing people or, or was putting people in these cushy so-called prisons uh, when they were early in their marijuana addiction, which basically allowed them to get clean. And so we as a society haven't had an opportunity to see the ravages of late-stage marijuana addiction in decades, uh, ever since the very good and successful war on drugs started. Um, so now that all of these very hard... <laughs> so now that all of these uh, just dastardly hardened weed heads are getting put back on the street, people are finally going to be able to see what... Uh, the, what, how perilous a late stage reefer addiction can truly be. Uh, so I think that this is going to be good to, uh, <laughs> to to swing the culture war back in a positive direction. 
uh, and I'm excited for it. No, actually, being 100% serious, um, yeah, the fact that some states that legalize marijuana still have people in prison for, like, just possession offenses, fucking ridiculous. So, you know, better late than never. Glad they're getting out. Very good. Um, So I've got two pieces of good news. The first one is very brief and to the point. Uh, This was from the Good News Network. I don't know how this qualifies as good news, but I figured it was going to (laughs) be instructive (laughs) nonetheless. Uh, So the headline here, companies with coworkers who don't get along should encourage gratitude journaling. (laughs) And this is from a study. I mean, this is science, Greg. This is what science looks like. Uh, So a recent study uh, from the University of Central Florida suggested that employees who keep a gratitude journal exhibit less rude behavior, Greg, and less mistreatment of others in the workplace. So is that good news? I don't know. It's definitely useful for some people. Uh, Moving on. Uh, You know, when we started this podcast, there were a lot of haters who said, no one cares about your podcast. You're not going to actually change society with the ideas you're putting out there. And so, frankly, this is just a victory lap for me because we, we talked about open science recently and how much we support it and huge, huge, huge win for open science. So looking through the news, um, Nature, very prestigious academic journal, group of journals. Um, the publisher of Nature has agreed uh, to its first deal to allow some re- researchers to publish in the journal with open access. So this is important stuff, you know, in many cases, really critical medical breakthroughs that affect people's health. And, you know, the, you know, the publisher of Nature is saying people deserve to get this information uh, should be open access. Do you think they did this because of our prodding? I think so. Okay. Um, I, I do you have a different idea? No, I mean, uh, you know, I, I knew that we we're basically setting FDA policy at this point, but I didn't know that our reach extended quite as far as to influence nature as well. Yeah. Well, I think so. Um, and so according to the terms, basically these research groups opt into like a four year deal. And so in order to kind of calculate the lump sum price, uh, the publisher had to figure out, well, okay, what's approximately the cost per article that we're going to charge researchers to publish open access in our journal after they have self-funded their work and done all the labor. And so you'd be surprised to find that the sum that they used for the calculation uh, was a very pretty reasonable 11,000 US dollars, uh, 11,200 <laughs> <laughs> 11, to be exact. So a uh, big win for open science. Uh, Good to see that we are having a huge impact, and I'm sure every researcher out there is super stoked to, you know, pay 11 grand to publish each article. Yeah, I mean, it, it brings up the age-old question that scientists have been asking this whole time. Would you rather uh, have an open access article in Nature, or would you rather get a new Hyundai? <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> All the haters out there who said that, you know, these publishers are going to continue prioritizing profits at the expense of the open science movement, you're going to have to eat your words, and the proof is in the pudding. Oh, man. 
Okay, so uh, unfortunately, despite, despite all this great news we've shared, we do have a bad news segment. Our, our good news segment really went off the rails this week. It doesn't matter. I mean, last time we just had to like find cute animal stories. Like, yeah, we're, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> my, my good news segment was, look how fat these bears are. And then I just ended up talking about how much hibernation sucks. Yeah, and mine was... Here's a whale that didn't die. <laughs> uh, oh, geez. Okay, so uh, let's go on to the bad news segment. Uh, this one's actually relevant to lifting, unfortunately. It is, yeah. So um, I forget exactly when this story broke. I think it was maybe back in like May or June. Uh, we talked about some drama uh, in the International Weightlifting Federation. So basically, the former president, uh, Thomas Ajan, was ousted last year after, um, I don't think I can yet say he was found guilty of corruption, but very, very, very credible allegations of extreme corruption. Um, So he was ousted and he was replaced, like we mentioned uh, previously, with Ursula Papandria, uh, who is an American, and she basically attempted a process of starting reform in the sport. Um, So, you know, making sure that, uh, like, policies were being followed equitably by all of the countries in the IWF, like trying to make sure weightlift, or trying to make sure drug testing was uh, more equitably administered and universal in in the sport, etc., Um, and was basically met with like resistance every step along the way. And, uh, (laughs) the board, it seems, uh, just got tired of any attempt to reform the sport. And so they ousted her as interim president. And then, uh, they replaced her with, uh, someone from Thailand, which, is interesting because <laughs> so uh, as as some backstory, weightlifting has been saying that they're going to reform, and they've been pressured to reform by the International Olympic Committee by the IOC because the sport is so dirty, um, and like the IOC has threatened <laughs> to kick weightlifting out of the Olympics if it doesn't shape up. Uh, so they said like, okay, we're going to do some reforms. Uh, Ursula comes in, tries to do some reforms and they say like, no, we don't want to do reforms. And so they, they oust her and install someone from Thailand as the new interim president, uh, which circling back is interesting because Thailand is fucking kicked out of international competitions currently because of so many failed drug tests. So uh, that was an interesting decision. There was massive outcry about it. So they kicked him out two days later, uh, installed uh, Mike Irani, who I believe is British. Um, so who, who knows? He might uh, pick up the torch and try to do some reforms. I don't know how that's going to go. Like those moves just happened a couple days ago. Uh, but in all of this drama... Uh, at least two or maybe three members of the board of the International Weightlifting Federation resigned. And so they currently have 17 members on their board and seven of them are from countries which are banned from international competition or can only send reduced sized teams to the Olympics because of 
how many of their athletes have failed drug tests. So that's uh, way closer to half of the board members than one would want it to be. Um, so anyway, things aren't looking good in weightlifting right now. Uh, I, I really think, like, so, you know, don't put much stock in this, because uh, I don't follow weightlifting or, like, IOC politics closely at all. Um, but just from an outside observer, I wouldn't be shocked if there's a better than 50-50 chance that the now 2021 Olympics are the last Olympics we see weightlifting in. Like, I mean, it could be that uh, they completely change their course, institute some reforms, maybe put on probation for a while and eventually get back in the IOC's good graces. But boy, it looks it looks tenuous at the moment. So I, I don't want to alienate myself from a big portion of the audience here, but I have to ask if that turns out to be the case. So if we soon see an Olympics without weightlifting, do you think that opens up the door for something like bodybuilding or maybe classic bodybuilding or both? Do you think both could make it in? I mean, no. All right. Fair enough. Time <laughs> time will tell. Uh, for now, I'll keep training. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, actually, that would be crazy because they're talking about maybe having esports at the Olympics. Like, not... Not in Tokyo, but maybe the next one or the one after that. Uh, I know there have been rumblings uh, regarding booting wrestling as well. And, you know, I'm not going to make any value judgments here. But just, like, thinking back to, like, the kind of the purpose of the Olympics originally. uh, Excluding weightlifting and wrestling, but having esports. Interesting. That's all I'll say. Well, well, we'll see what happens. We will. Okay, I think it's about time for our fan favorite selling out segment. Uh, so just a reminder, if you head over to BulkSupplements.com and you use the discount code SBSPOD in all caps at checkout, you get a nice 5% discount off of your order. So we introduced this idea or this um, this news in our last episode And I got a lot of pushback. Some people thought my example was a little bit ridiculous. I talked about uh, a scenario in which you saved about $125,000 a year uh, from this 5% discount code, Uh, which, uh, you know, upon further reflection, I think there was some merit to to some of the pushback that I received. So that's fine. Um, And I'm going to present a different scenario, a little bit more reasonable. So let's say you save $100 this year on your, your your supplement purchases. And let's say you invest it in a fund with a very modest 20% return rate and you let it ride for a short 85 years. We're talking about $500 million in supplement savings. Um, and $100, I mean, that's... I would love to see somebody push back on any of the parameters that I've set in that scenario. Uh, Greg, you, you've got an addition here. Uh, <laughs> related to uh to our selling out segment yeah i do so i I don't want people to listen to the selling out segment and think that we're only shilling for bulk supplements and only shilling for companies that we have uh, some sort of financial interest in our listeners using so i just want to make people aware of 
another very, very good and very exciting pre-workout on the market. So let me just read you some of these ingredients. Uh, it has agmatine sulfate, which is theorized to help with pumps. Citrulline malate, similar, improves blood flow, well research, eh, reasonably well-researched. Beetroot extract, we've talked about some of the ergogenic benefits of nitrate on here before. L-tyrosine, the, limit, the limiting amino acid in catecholamine synthesis, good stuff. L-theanine uh, helps take the edge off of caffeine, uh, it seems, to some degree. Uh, it does have caffeine as well. Also very well-researched, acute ergogenic. Taurine, who cares, whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> riboflavin, that's a B vitamin. How could that be bad? Anyway, so I'm sure you're listening to this and thinking, damn, that sounds like a great pre-workout. Uh, it has a lot of good ingredients. But here's here's the actual kicker. It has a novel delivery method that I think everyone's going to be really excited to hear about. That's right, folks. It's the world's first pre-workout vape. Uh, it's called V-Rush, and uh, <laughs> now it's time to drop the bit. Holy shit, this is the dumbest idea I've ever seen. Um, so just to put this in context, the average vape cartridge has like one milligram of liquid in it. <laughs> and, uh, milligram or milliliter? M- milliliter. Okay. I mean, I'm assuming it's... Uh, probably not much of a difference but yeah, yeah 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 like the density of it it's probably around a milligram whatever yeah. so it has a milliliter of fluid which should be around a gram of uh of stuff so anyway you're supposed to be able to take 150 hits per cartridge you're supposed to take five before each workout so we're talking like you're consuming milligrams of liquid which you know isn't all fucking powder because that wouldn't be good. So, you know, like citrulline malate, you're supposed to consume like six to eight grams for peak ergogenic effect, which is like six to eight times more than this entire fucking vape cartridge. So this sets a new global standard for underdosed supplements. Uh, and also, you you were looking into this before we started recording. There's a decent chance that this is just completely illegal, right? I don't I don't want to make any claims that are so strong, but I don't think based on everything the FDA has ever said, <laughs> I don't think you can market a dietary supplement to be inhaled as the method of delivery. That seems to be a line that the FDA has drawn very clearly. <laughs> and so it's possible that they're not marketing it as a dietary supplement. I don't know what it would be. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, the first thing I looked at, you know, Rick Collins, who's been on the show, uh, has done a lot of writing when it comes to like, what is a supplement and what can be. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty damn clear. (laughs) You can't just give like any route of administration and be like, no, we're calling it a dietary supplement. Uh, you can do that, but the FDA is probably going to send you some letters uh, and be upset. Yeah, and and the other good question is like, <laughs> how uh, how is this stuff actually going to get in your bloodstream? Because I have no idea. Because the thing is with like inhalation, um, so like some of the stuff you inhale can be absorbed across like mucous membranes, but actual like diffusion into the blood via the alveoli is generally just like 
passive diffusion, basically. Um, and like most of these things are relatively large, like molecules or compounds that would need transporters. So like, I don't even know that most of this stuff would actually enter your bloodstream via inhalation. So, um, you mentioned that, you know, it has to be a supplement, a drug, a food or a cosmetic product. It might end up being a cosmetic product because it might make your lungs sparkly. So if you've ever had a good aged Parmesan cheese, the little crystals in there um, like that, that are like a little bit crunchy, those are tyrosine crystals like the, the tyrosine basically like percolates out of um, like it becomes undissolved within like the mass of cheese and forms crystals. So like it very well could be that you're just forming like little Parmesan-esque tyrosine crystals in your lungs, uh, which could theoretically be uh, construed as as, as a co- cosmetic procedure. Wasn't that a, a big source of panic? Man, think back to a time when we had small things to panic about. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that a source of panic was the the idea of like vaping lung like that? that yeah. It, uh, uh, what do they call it? Popcorn lung? Well, that that was from a from literally just taking a huge whiff of fresh popcorn fumes. But, yeah. Yeah. But but I think they were saying that like vaping did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. But that was a concern, right? Was that like there was like. I think I saw some nasty imaging kind of going around Twitter of like, dude, what happened to this lung? But uh, yeah, so who knows, man? Anyway, all of which is to say Vape Nation, uh, V-Rush pre-workout vapes, probably not a good idea. (laughs) Okay, you want to move on and do some feats of strength? Let's do it. Um, Yeah, so uh, two feats of strength, one of them from during our hiatus and one more recent. So... um, Probably the craziest thing that happened while we were on hiatus, I just completely forgot to talk about, uh, and that is Dave Ricks squatted 320 kilos or 705 pounds for a triple. So uh, Dave competes at 205 pounds, uh, 93 kilos. Uh, He is 61 years young, which is noteworthy because most competitive powerlifters are not in their 60s. Uh, and also most world-class lifters aren't still getting stronger in their sixties. Uh, Dave's best squat in a meet is 718 pounds or, uh, 325 and a half kilos. He did that at 57 years old. So it's four years on, uh, and he's taking five and a half kilos less than his best competition squat, doing it for a triple, Looks like he very well might squat, I don't know, 340, 350, so like 750, 770, somewhere in that range if he competes again, which would be absolutely bonkers. Uh, And also, like that would be a record in his weight class regardless of age. And it's worth uh, just noting how far ahead he is uh, compared to every other 60-plus-year-old power lifter in his weight class so he just did 705 for a triple that's crazy the next best squat in the 205 class for anyone who's 60 plus is 540 pounds so he's uh he's squatting 160 pounds more than the next best person ever and he's doing it for a triple um (laughs) so like 
I mean, dude, he's fucking strong regardless of age, regardless of weight class. But the fact that he's doing it at 205 at 61 years old and still getting stronger, like, that's that's mind-boggling. That's ridiculous. And it's not like he's a dude who just got into lifting like five years ago and was like a natural at it or something. Like, dude's been competing since his 20s. Like, he's in his fourth decade of powerlifting, still, still getting stronger. Uh, I don't know that that's ever happened before. Has anyone just like meticulously documented the way he lives? Like, like, are have we commissioned a project to discover <laughs> like what his secret is? I don't know. Th- th- does he put his information out there a lot? I honestly have no idea. Someone needs to just do like a deep dive biographical piece and just be like. All right, Dave, let's start from day one. <laughs> Dude, all of those like uh, all of those radical life extension folks should just pay him any sum of money he wants to study him intensely. Yeah. Because, yeah, like he he's on like straight Benjamin Button mode. Like <laughs> yeah. it's fucking crazy. Um, other feet of strength. Taylor Atwood uh, recently destroyed his own world record uh, in the. Uh, 74 kilo or 163 pound class in uh, I don't think it was an international IPF meet but I I think it was a USAPL meet I think it was Um, like pretty local yeah yeah Yeah. so um, you know competing drug tested totaled uh, 812 kilos or 1790 pounds again at 74 kilos or 163 that is the best uh, the best total without like raw without knee wraps at all time in either the 163 or 165 class. Uh, that's even counting people who compete untested. And he's only 23 kilos off of Radislav Petkov's uh, knee wraps record um, at 75 kilos. So, and also, I think this was the fourth ever raw. 11 times body weight total. So anyway, crazy performance all around. He's like 50 plus kilos ahead of the next closest person in his weight class. He's He's been one of the best lifters on the planet for a while. Uh, and he's just, he's shifted to another level and he's just like putting more and more space between himself and the competition. So uh, very, very impressive lifting from Taylor Atwood. All right. So moving on, um, I've got kind of like a mini research review segment. It's not like a huge research roundup. It's just a a brief look at a couple topics that we've kind of touched on in the past. Um, So in the past, we've talked a little bit about the idea of what you should eat for breakfast before training, right? So a lot of people train early in the morning and they're like, can I just train fasted? Is that bad for performance? Do I need to get some protein in, maybe some carbs? And so there's been in the last like two years, kind of a little flurry of studies on this topic. And I got to be honest, they they make the answer almost less clear (laughs) rather than more clear as they keep coming out. And that's, that's not a knock on the research itself. The studies are are quite well done. Um, But, but it's a really fascinating topic. So the first paper that I think is relevant, I'm pretty sure we've discussed it on the show before, but uh, it's called breakfast omission reduces subsequent resistance exercise performance. It's by Naharudin and colleagues published in 2019. 
They looked at 16 resistance trained men who regularly consume breakfast. These are habitual breakfast consumers. Uh, and, you know, the quick synopsis of the study is uh, some people had a, a carbohydrate rich breakfast and then did performance testing. Uh, I think it was actually a crossover trial. So then they came back on a different visit uh, and, and omitted breakfast, just kind of did the, the same testing protocol in a fasted state without that carbohydrate-rich uh, breakfast. And the results are pretty self-explanatory based on the title. Um, the, the lifters were able to complete more reps to fatigue for a couple different exercises if they had a carbohydrate-rich breakfast before exercise. So based on that study alone, you would look at the findings and say, oh, cool. It looks like you probably want some carbs prior to exercise. Uh, you know. Resistance training is not purely glycolytic, but it is. it does utilize glycolytic energy systems. So it would seem pretty straightforward. You want to have plenty of carbohydrate av availability when you begin that exercise session. But that same group published a, a paper in 2020 that made things a little bit more uh, complicated. So uh, again, Naharudin and colleagues in 2020 uh, with this study, it was called viscous placebo and carbohydrate breakfasts similarly decrease appetite and increase resistance exercise performance compared with a control breakfast in trained males. Uh, so basically what they, what they found with this study uh, was that having some kind of breakfast uh, was better than not having some kind of breakfast. Uh, so, so basically it was a carbohydrate rich breakfast was one condition. The second condition was water only. The third condition was, it sounds weird, a placebo breakfast. <laughs> so it was like this kind of, I think it was like kind of an orange flavored sludge, <laughs> but, but that actually really had like negligible energy content mm -hmm. uh, and pretty negligible carbohydrate content uh, by extension. And what they found was that having some kind of sludge <laughs> was good for, for resistance exercise performance, but there was really no benefit, whether that sludge was non-caloric or essentially non-caloric mm -hmm. or an actual carbohydrate-rich breakfast. Both of them were better than water, but they weren't necessarily very different from each other. And so that really throws a wrinkle in the whole, you know, the, the simple explanation of, oh, well, you need some carbs around before training. So those results would suggest that, you know, maybe it's a psychological effect, some kind of placebo effect where people think, oh, look, I'm very well nourished. I got this nutritious breakfast. Now I'm going to go perform well. Or it's possible that hunger plays a role. Maybe being hungry during exercise just generally sucks and tanks your performance. Um, and so now there's a third study uh, relevant to this in the mix. Um, it's a little bit different. Uh, this one is by Metcalf and colleagues published recently in 2020. The title is omission of a carbohydrate rich breakfast impairs evening endurance exercise performance despite complete dietary compensation at lunch. And so the idea here, it was another crossover trial with 11 really well-trained cyclists. Um, so big caveat, we're talking about endurance performance here rather than uh, resistance exercise. But what was really interesting was one group had a carbohydrate-rich breakfast and then a standardized lunch, and then they performed uh, a time trial in the evening. I think it was a 20-kilometer time trial on the bike. The other group, or, or the other condition, I should say, 
they had uh, they basically omitted that carbohydrate rich breakfast but totally made up for it at the standardized lunch. So, so they made it such that they didn't have that carbohydrate-rich breakfast, but they still ended up between breakfast and lunch having the same energy intake, having the same carbohydrate intake, having the same macronutrient intake overall. And what they found was kind of unexpectedly, you know, this exercise bout took place, I think it was like four or five hours after lunch. And you would think, well, who cares if you got the carbs at, at breakfast and lunch or lunch only? You got all the carbs in. You had four or five hours. You should be able to perform well in the evening. They did notice that there was actually a small performance advantage for the group that got the carbs at breakfast, um, even though they equated all that other stuff throughout the day. It was a 3% performance advantage. I think it was about 3%. But you know, in really well-trained cyclists, uh, you know, the test-retest reliability should be pretty good. Um, you know, I, I think they make a strong case in the paper that, you know, w- what they found, that 3% difference, uh, w- was greater than the typical error of the measurement or the, the smallest worthwhile change of the measurement. So it's a small difference, but um, it, it's probably a, you know, quote-unquote real difference based on the measurement techniques that were used. Um, and, and so they were thinking, you know, maybe this has something to do with the time course of how that glycogen is stored. So maybe there were some slight differences in liver and muscle glycogen availability at the time of exercise, even though it was four or five hours later. They didn't seem particularly enthusiastic about that explanation of the findings. Uh, they thought that it really just kind of came down to psychology. They, they thought that you know, there has been some research indicating that you can kind of get a placebo effect from what appears to be a nutritious breakfast in terms of subsequent exercise performance. And so they're wondering if maybe that the fact that the, the participants knew they were either having a nutritious, nutritious breakfast or not, you know, maybe that influenced how they self-selected their intensity during that time trial. So maybe they, when they had a, a nice solid breakfast in the morning, Maybe when they got on the bike that evening, they just felt a lot more ready to kind of take on the time trial and push themselves to higher uh, intensities. Because that's a really important thing to keep in mind with a time trial is that the load is entirely self-selected. You know, you kind of decide when to push and when to pull back. So um, the the authors of the study were, were a lot more, they seem to embrace that psychological aspect a lot more than the physiological explanation. Uh, and I got to be honest with that four or five hour time period between lunch and, and, and the evening exercise, I it's, it's hard to say like, Oh, that's clearly a glycogen thing. You know, I, I think there was ample opportunity to, uh, to tuck some of that glycogen away and, and use it later. So mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to say for sure, which one was really contributing could be a combination of both, but it does leave us in an interesting spot where, you know, the question that comes up all the time is like, for a lifter, how important is breakfast? What should my breakfast look like? I think without question, there's two things that we can say. First of all, we probably don't want to be hungry. You probably don't want to be training in a state where you're fasted and really hungry. Um, number two, I think you should definitely eat what helps you feel prepared. Uh, so something that curbs your hunger, uh, something that... <laughs> basically saying placebo yourself into having a nice workout, right? But like eating something that makes sense to you, curbs your hunger, and doesn't cause any GI distress during the exercise, during the workout. 
And then at that point, what do we do about carbohydrate availability? I think it's safe to say that carbohydrate availability is either neutral or good. Um, if you're doing high intensity exercise, you don't want to go into it thinking, how can I reduce my, my carbohydrate availability? That that's going to be a bad thing. We know that really severe glycogen depletion is going to be bad for your performance. Um, which does bring me to a slight tangent, which is that, you know, resistance exercise is not exclusively glycolytic, but it utilizes glycolytic energy systems, period. Um, I keep seeing people now that low carb has become so popular and even carnivore approaches, I keep seeing people go on these rants, you know, they'll put up a study and say, oh, look, resistance exercise only depletes glycogen by 30%, 35%, whatever, you know, different studies give a different number. And it seems like everyone's working under the assumption that performance is perfectly fine until you reach like 0% glycogen. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, damn, I ran out of glycogen. Like <laughs> they're almost treating it like a gas tank. Yeah. And when a lot of people make these arguments based on those studies, I kind of want to just ask them, like, are you necessarily assuming that you have to get to 0% glycogen before performance suffers? And I feel like it's kind of baked into a lot of those explanations. And I don't see why you would think that's the case based on the things we've learned about glycogen in the last 10 or 15 years. So I think the thing is like most people don't know the things we've learned about glycogen in the last 10 or 15 years. Right. Like, you know, like localized glycogen deposits. I, I think they think that more or less glycogen is uh, uniformly distributed throughout the muscle. And yeah, it does kind of deplete like a gas tank. And as long as you have some there, you're good to go. Yeah, I, I think you're definitely right, because whenever you talk to somebody about those studies who's, who's reasonably informed, they're like, where the hell did you find that? Yeah. And you're like, just in the journals, man. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's inconvenient because I, I think we still have a lot to learn about exactly what the ramifications are of those mm -hmm. findings. So I think people are just kind of kind of going to ignore them until we fully flesh out all of the, uh, the applications uh, and the kind of practical consequences. But but yeah, I, just, just so uh, just so our listeners know what we're alluding to there, um, there's a line of research. And, and one of the reasons I think this isn't well known is there's not a ton of research in this area because it uh, <laughs> it basically requires a lot of equipment that most exercise physiology labs don't have. Like you need to be able to um, like study not just like what's going on in muscle fibers, but what's going on in like separate, like very tiny sublocations in muscle fibers. So it requires like very high powered electron mic microscopy, which most exercise science labs just don't have because it's very expensive. Uh, and also not relevant to most research that most exercise scientists would be doing. Um, but basically like Glycogen isn't uniformly distributed throughout the muscle. Like there's there's various like deposits of glycogen that can be used for different cellular processes. Um, and during intense exercise, intramyofibrillar glycogen is depleted pretty quickly. Um, and glycogen around the uh, sarcoplasmic reticulum calcium pumps is depleted pretty quickly. And like basically 
those those are the things using like virtually all of the energy during exercise. So to power muscle contraction and to power like reuptake of glycogen for muscle contraction. Uh, and so, you know, you could be 30% glycogen depleted, but like be 80% glycogen depleted for those actual depots of glycogen that matter, um, it, it, like from an exercise context. Uh, and the the mechanistic research, basically what they do is like, they look and see like, hey, uh, in isolated muscle fibers, if we deplete glycogen in these specific areas, what does that do to contractile performance? And it decreases it very substantially. Um, so yeah, like there's not... I don't even know how you would do in vivo research on that. Uh, like, you know, basically you just have to exercise people, take a biopsy and like see what it looks like after exercise, uh, which isn't quite as good. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so that that's basically what we're talking about. Um, the, those very specific glycogen deposits, what happens to them during exercise is probably substantially greater and substantially more important than what's happening to like global muscle glycogen levels. Yeah. And so the reason I bring that up is there are some reasonable arguments one could make that downplay the importance of carbohydrate in the pre-exercise breakfast. Um, you know, specifically, you know, that second study I talked about where having just some kind of sludge <laughs> seemed to be just as good as a carbohydrate sludge. There, there are reasonable arguments you could make that lead to saying, hey, just get something in before you train, something that attenuates hunger. Doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, 300 grams of carbs. You can make that argument, but be mindful of when people make this argument downplaying the role of carbohydrate availability and carbohydrate intake. If they're purely basing it on oh, look at this study, it only depleted muscle glycogen by 35%. That is extremely shaky ground upon which to base any appraisal of the role of carbohydrate in the diet. Um, but anyway, you know, the practical conclusions, what should we do for this kind of breakfast? Like I said, don't be hungry. Eat something that helps you feel prepared and doesn't induce any stomach discomfort. Carbohydrate, I would say, kind of the null hypothesis is that it makes sense to have a decent amount of carbs in that breakfast. But if you're really adamant about omitting it, there is at least some evidence suggesting that you're, you're still probably going to be in pretty good shape, assuming that the, the overall intensity and volume of your session doesn't exceed what has been observed in these studies. Makes sense to me. Okay. Now I had another topic that I wanted to do kind of a brief mini research review on here. Uh, so someone in the subreddit, uh, and by the way, if you're listening and you're not familiar, we, we have a new Stronger by Science subreddit, and we've got a Stronger by Science Facebook group that are, you know, public groups. So please feel, uh, feel welcome to join in on the conversation. We'll post the links to both of those in the show notes. But in the subreddit, somebody uh, posted a study. Um, it was an in vitro study. So immediately big caveats. But the idea was that there was a huge increase in collagen production from uh, from glycine uh, application, you know. So uh, the, the idea was that a really high glycine concentration increased collagen synthesis by these articular chondrocytes in vitro. They're basically trying to make the claim that uh, dietary glycine should be really important for uh, promoting collagen synthesis and, and therefore having effects on, uh, you know, 
osteoarthritis, but also just general uh, joint health and pain, ligaments, tendons, etc. So the study that, that they posted uh, was by Depaz Lugo uh, in 2018. And the first thing I want to mention, you know, the things that jump out are like 200% increase. Whenever we look at an in vitro study, you know, we, we of course have to be cautious about assuming that the findings are going to translate in general, but we definitely have to be cautious that the actual magnitude of effects is going to, is going to translate in a literal way. So I, I would not get too wrapped up when you see 200%, you say, wow, that's a big number. Um, so I don't want to get too fixated on that, but I want to focus on the question, you know, does glycine potentially have a role for people who are trying to be really mindful of how their nutrition might impact uh, connective tissue adaptations to training or, you know, even, uh, you know, there, there's a collagen component of skeletal muscle as well. But, uh, you know, resynthesizing collagen in, you know, especially tendons and ligaments is where you see a lot of this. So we have talked about collagen and gelatin supplementation in the past. Um, so uh, I, I forget which episode it was, but we kind of did a deep dive talking about uh, the current state of research with collagen. I also wrote a mass article about collagen as well, but the general findings, you know, you, there's studies by Shaw in 2017, Clark in 2008, McLinden in 2011. There, there's quite a few studies, a small group of studies, but, but there are a number of studies indicating that generally speaking, supplementation with either gelatin or collagen when combined with vitamin C may have positive effects related to collagen synthesis and then downstream things such as, you know, uh, the thickness of a particular tendon in a study or self-reported joint pain, things that seem to be, you know, relevant when it comes to collagen synthesis. And the whole idea with, uh, with gelatin or collagen supplementation is that they're high in amino acids that would be relevant to uh, the synthesis of, of collagen. So uh, specifically, gelatin and collagen are really, really high in glycine. Uh, about uh, it, When you look at the amino acid breakdown of, of gelatin and collagen, glycine is about a third of it. Uh, so, so glycine is, is a really heavy lifter when we are looking at these studies that utilize collagen or gelatin supplementation. And again, I do want to reiterate the vitamin C plays a critical role there. So uh, when we look at the synthesis of collagen, uh, you know, the, the, the main things that are, are really important there, uh, you know, we need uh, glycine and proline, but we also need hydroxylated forms of lysine and proline. Uh, and so the nice thing about collagen and gelatin supplementation is it provides all that stuff. So if you, if you just take gelatin or collagen with a little bit of vitamin C in there, you've got everything you need. And the vitamin C helps with the hydroxylation of lysine and proline. So if you're looking at just kind of the easiest catch-all nutritional intervention that maybe might support what you're trying to do in terms of connective tissue, I think gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen with a little extra vitamin C, uh, and the vitamin C we're talking about like... Uh, I think it's like uh, 50 milligrams is typically what they throw in there. I don't even know that that matters. Why Why do you say that? Well, I mean, so the reason they throw it in is vitamin C is like a necessary cofactor in one of the steps of collagen synthesis. Yeah. Um, but like most people with a standard Western diet do consume plenty of vitamin C. Like I, yeah. I, I, I just don't see the point in 
needing that vitamin C with the the actual like gelatin or collagen itself. Like at the time of ingestion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I if if I were to speculate, it, it's one of those things. You know, it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's cheap. You're never going to regret having 50 milligrams of vitamin C. So I I feel like it makes sense to just throw it in. Yeah. So the the reason I say that is um like there's a lot of places you can buy like gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen supplements. Very few of them have vitamin C included. Mm-hmm. Um, and all. so I, I'm thinking about this from a practical perspective because like I've tried to do this before, like basically get gelatin and get vitamin C and mix them together as like a standalone supplement. Mm-hmm. Uh, vitamin C powder is like way finer than gelatin powder is. And so if you mix it together, just like over time, the vitamin C does pretty much all end up settling to the bottom anyways, just because mm. like the grains are finer. Um, so like I, I, you know, you could go to bulksupplements.com, buy both of them uh, and just keep them in like separate bags and use like a big scoop of collagen and just like a tiny little like thimble full of vitamin mm-hmm. C because like 50, 50 milligrams isn't much. Yeah. Anyway, it just seems like a lot of trouble, and I really just don't think you need that extra vitamin C. Yeah, I mean, so... That, that's my hot take. Wow, that, that's a very hot take. So, um, how about this? Let's meet in the middle. Try not to be vitamin C deficient. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Okay. I'm glad, I'm glad we could compromise there. Um, but anyway, yeah. So, if you're looking for just kind of the catch-all supplement, and you're like, listen, I want to give everything that's necessary... Uh, for for new collagen synthesis, that's kind of the easy route. But like I said, glycine plays a pretty big role there. Um, you know, it's a third of of the collagen um, or the gelatin um, in terms of the amino acid breakdown, approximately a third. But you know, when I wrote my mass article, I wrote in the conclusion that I'd be curious to see if you know these potential benefits of gelatin and collagen hold up in the context of a diet that's already high in vitamin C and sufficient intake of protein from diverse protein sources, particularly including sources high in glycine. So I kind of singled out glycine there. Uh, and the reason, and by the way, before I move on, I should say the collagen gelatin stuff is still pretty speculative. It's not like a rock solid case that, yeah, supplement with those, it's going to have massive tangible, meaningful benefits for connective tissue. But there's some mechanistic stuff that indicates, okay, there, there might be something to it. Uh, but the reason that I singled out glycine, um, there, there was uh, a, a pretty solid review by Melendez Hevia and colleagues in 2019, where they, they kind of made the case that, you know, glycine is probably a little bit short of what would be optimal in, in terms of, uh, you know, maximizing all of its roles in the body, including collagen synthesis. And I I think for a good analogy to kind of help wrap your head around the concept, we talk about protein all the time, right? And so with dietary protein, there's the number that prevents you from having clinical deficiency, right? So like, what what is the minimum amount of protein per day that prevents you from having health consequences from insufficient protein? That's a very different number from how much protein should a lifter eat every day to maximize their gains, right? Those are very, very different numbers and very, very different concepts. 
And so what they argue in this review paper, generally speaking, is yes, we can synthesize glycine. So it's not classically considered an essential amino amino acid, right? It's considered non-essential. But what they argue is when you put together the maximum amount we can really synthesize per day, and you put together the amount from the typical diet, maybe you get 1.5 to 3 grams per day, maybe you synthesize about 3 grams per day of glycine. What they argue is after you put those together, you still might be falling maybe around 10 grams short of what they, they would suggest would be optimal in terms of really making sure you've got enough glycine to maximize you know, what it's responsible for in the body. So, so they argue that there's this deficit at maybe 10, even 12 grams per day, I think they argue at some points uh, in the paper. So the idea is, even though glycine is not considered an essential amino acid, potentially increasing your intake via supplementation might be advisable. Um, and, and theoretically, this would probably do much of what we would expect uh, collagen or gelatin supplementation to do. The big caveat, or I guess one of the reasons that you might explore this instead of the catch-all approach of just throwing everything at it from gelatin or collagen. So there is theoretically cause for concern about kidney stones when you're taking in high doses of hydroxyproline, which is one of the components of gelatin and collagen. The studies that have used gelatin and collagen supplementation have not identified that as an adverse effect. It's not like participants in all these studies are getting kidney stones all over the place. Uh, I haven't seen that reported at all. But theoretically, when you look at you know the, the biochemistry underlying that metabolism, you could say, hey, if you're kind of if you have a history of kidney stones or it's something that you're really watchful of, maybe high doses of, doses of hydroxyproline wouldn't be advisable. I'm just going to throw another practical consideration out there. If they're saying that you might need up to 10 grams of additional glycine and glycine is like, what, around a third of collagen, mm-hmm. uh, you'd have to supplement with like 30 grams of collagen per day, which again, if you've supplemented with collagen before which I have, that's not, uh, that's not a trivial amount of collagen to choke down because like it's, it's bulk forming. So, you know, you mix some in water, it absorbs a lot of the water. Uh, you know, it it basically starts becoming jello. Um, and so (laughs) either you need to consume, uh, Uh, just an enormous amount of water, which will still end up having like a really, really weird. And in my opinion, off putting texture to choke it all down. Or you could, you know, mix it with like 20 ounces of water in a shaker cup, uh, start drinking it. And like, as you're drinking it, it will keep absorbing water. And like, by the end of it, you'd have to be eating it with a spoon. Um, so anyway, supplementing with 30 grams of collagen or, uh, or or gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen. I mean, it's theoretically possible. It's not like it tastes as bad uh, as um, like sodium bicarbonate or something like that, but it's, in my opinion, pretty unpleasant. Yeah. (laughs) So if, if you're trying to get 10 grams of glycine, it's probably way more just generally pleasant to supplement with the glycine than to supplement with the gelatin or collagen, in my opinion. Yeah. And I should be super clear that, you know, when we talk about this 10 gram number of, of, of glycine, 
it's critical to understand where that number came from. It was not a randomized controlled study where 10 grams of glycine did something good. It was biochemistry calculations, you know, so that number should inherently be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, so, so I don't want it to seem like I'm saying, yeah, I mean, one weird trick, get 10 grams of glycine every day. Uh, it, it's, this is very speculative. This is more calculation based more than anything. Um, but in terms of like what kind of doses are actually tolerable for glycine, uh, you look at some studies, there have been people who take nine grams on an empty stomach and report some abdominal pain and some soft stools, which isn't pleasant. So, um, that's probably not a great route to go, but there have been studies where they've given five grams of glycine with a meal three times per day. So 15 grams total. And in that study that I'm thinking of, there were no major adverse events. It seemed like it was pretty well tolerated. So if this is an idea that you think is interesting, you know, I always encourage people before you do something weird and kind of experimental with supplementation, run it by a doctor or registered dietitian to see if they think it's right for you before you just start kind of taking all sorts of weird potions and powders. Um, but, but there is at least evidence to suggest that doses as high as 15 grams a day can be tolerated if they're timed appropriately. Um, so, you know, the, the question comes back to, you know, that headline from that study of glycine having huge impacts on collagen synthesis. Is there anything to it? I think mechanistically, yes. Is there evidence to suggest that it's going to have major positive impacts on anything related to lifting in terms of the actual integrity or, you know, biomechanical properties of, of connective tissues. We don't have that evidence. Do we have any evidence that it reduces injury occurrence or enhances recovery from soft uh, or from connective tissue injury? No, we don't have that evidence. Uh, so at now I kind of, at this point, I kind of file it under the interesting idea category, like, oh, there's some mechanistic stuff there. There's some rodent stuff there. Um, will it pan out? I don't know. Uh, so if you're someone who's really interested in it, there's enough meat on the bone to, to find it fascinating and to think, hey, maybe we, we will eventually have some evidence to suggest that, you know, maybe instead of the, the, the modest positive effects we've seen with collagen or gelatin supplementation, maybe it's the glycine that, that's really pulling a lot of that load. Um, we're not really certain yet, but, but, but the fact that there was that in vitro study, uh, with, with the pretty crazy numbers that, that seemed pretty, uh, pretty extreme, you know, take the numbers from an in vitro study always with a grain of salt, but is there a mechanism there that makes sense? I would say definitely. And the final caveat to, to put, uh, to throw in here is collagen synthesis is not necessarily going to be determinant of, you know, how your tendons and ligaments respond to loading, right? So when, when it comes to uh, trying to put yourself in a position to reduce your likelihood of tendon or ligament injury or trying to come back uh, from connective tissue injuries, uh, yes, nutrition has a role, but training and loading have a role as well. And so even if we have a study saying, oh, wow, look at this mechanistic, uh, you know, look at this increase in collagen synthesis we've observed, you would still want to see research indicating that not only is collagen being synthesized, but we're actually, you know, because there is collagen breakdown as well. So we want to make sure that there is net accretion of collagen, 
but also that the collagen is being constructed with adequate architecture to actually positively affect the biomechanical properties of that connective tissue. Because if there's just more more collagen with poor architecture of the collagen fibers, it might not necessarily pan out to better recovery or even injury prevention for Mm -hmm. that tissue. So uh, if you are someone who's concerned about uh, the integrity of your connective tissues, tendon and ligament, specifically, Keith Barr has put out some really good practical papers of like, hey, here's like an idea of what you ought to be doing from a training perspective. Uh, Here's what you ought to be doing from a nutrition perspective. I think he gives a pretty clear a pretty fair rundown of what we know and what we don't know. And so I'll be sure to link some of those resources in the show notes. But Keith Barr has done some really cool, innovative work when it comes to collagen and gelatin type supplementation. Uh, and he really knows his stuff when it comes to tendon and ligament. But one of the one of the interesting things he advocates is these small little exercise bouts throughout the day. So when he talks about training for either injury prevention or recovery, from these type of tendon or or ligament issues. He talks about doing these little, little bits of activity, less than 10 minutes in duration, but doing them at least six hours apart from each other. And and so doing three of those really tiny sessions throughout the the day, breakfast or um, not breakfast, morning, afternoon, and evening. Um, And in the links I share, he kind of talks about the mechanistic underpinning for why that is and kind of the, the, the time course of the refractory response to loading that's observed in some of these tissues. But, um, you know, it, it's one of those topics when we talk about trying to beneficially impact tendon and ligament. Um, there's a lot of interest there. There's a lot of mechanistic research, but I, I'd really love to see more applied interventions where, where we really try to get a big sample of people in there and see how these things pan out when we, you know, take it from a Petri dish and then say, okay, we're in the real world now. Training, nutrition, does this stuff actually impact injury rates or impact recovery? But for now, th- th- that's really all I can share about it. Um, it. It's it's a bit speculative, but it's certainly fascinating. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to a Q&A segment. Um, we intended to do a bunch of Q and A's last episode, but we ran out of time and we could only talk about what Wilkes score Ant-Man would have, which I think a lot of people got benefit from. You know, let me, let me comment on that real quick. Uh, a few people responded to that segment saying that I actually got it completely wrong. Wow. Uh, and that the way Ant-Man's powers work are that basically they they make his uh, atoms further apart or closer together, and that's how he grows and or shrinks, and therefore mass would be conserved, uh, and you know getting bigger or smaller wouldn't change his mass, and therefore wouldn't affect his Wilk score. All I can say to that is that's fucking bullshit. Because I've seen <laughs> the documentary film Ant Man and the follow up documentary film Ant Man and the Wasp. Uh, And you can see no camera tricks. The camera follows him the whole time. He's like riding on ants. And I I realize that ants have just insane strength to body weight ratios. But like Paul Rudd, let's just assume he's like 170, 180. If he sits on an ant, even if he's shrunk down, he's going to crush the ant. The fact that he can ride on an ant inherently means that his mass is decreasing. So I think Hank Pym is full of shit 
fake news. Uh, and I mean, trust your eyes, folks. Like, if he can ride on an ant, his mass is decreasing. Yeah, I couldn't ride on an ant. I definitely couldn't. Wow, that's... We may have uncovered a major plot hole, uh, which really blows the lid. We might be... This is as big of a deal as when people figured out that the moon landing was fake. Yeah, this could be quite a scandal. Um, we'll, we'll have to touch base about this again in the future. But for now, uh, let's talk about other stuff. So... Um, <laughs> This question came from someone who said who says their name is Natty, and uh, in parentheses they said this is my actual nickname. I'm unfortunately 100% serious. Um, so the question is, Greg, can you rank cooking methods from best to worst in terms of how they impact micronutrient content? For example. I primarily cook my potatoes in the microwave, and I'd like to know if it would be better to cook them differently, such as baking them in an oven, uh, pan frying them, boiling them, etc. Sure. So um, it, it, it's hard to give like a generalized answer to this question because it depends a lot on like what nutrient you're talking about specifically. So, uh, but but just kind of to paint in broad strokes, in a general sense. Uh, cooking your food does tend to increase nutritional value relative to eating it raw. That's not the case for all potential foods and all potential nutrients, but that's like a general trend. So yeah, in general, cooking food is a, a good thing to do. Um, and really the only two things you, you need to watch out for a lot uh, are one just like completely cooking the shit out of your food. Um, so like getting it really hot, cooking it for a really, really long time, uh, that can cause some vitamins to break down. Um, so yeah, you, you don't want to cook it. I mean, basically you just don't want to cook it to death. Uh, and then the other thing is that, um, frying and boiling or poaching foods can decrease nutritional value to some degree. So, uh, like vitamins, minerals, other nutrients can leach out into the frying oil and or water, um, which if you're not planning on consuming those things, which, you know, maybe you're, you're boiling something and then you're going to like reduce the water down and do something with that. If so, cool. If you're planning on consuming the fry oil, <laughs> that's a problem. Uh, I wouldn't recommend that anyway. Um, but yeah, so, so frying and, and boiling, like some, some nutrients can leach out into the water or oil. Uh, but other than that, like pretty much every other cooking method is fine and like fairly comparable from a perspective of maintaining micronutrients. Uh, one other general thing I'll say about cooking methods just to be aware of is that when it comes to cooking meat from a general health perspective, it's probably a good idea to cook it gently. So like baking it or um, like braising it or something like that. There's some evidence that uh, putting a really, really hard sear on it can increase your risk of some like metabolic disorders. Um, so, I mean, on one hand, that's very unfortunate because getting a good sear on say like a chicken thigh or a good piece of steak or like a good piece of pork is very delicious. Um, but anyway, you know, like everything about nutrition is kind of a balancing act of uh, satisfying your hedonic desires with 
you know, trying to make it generally healthy. So I would say if you're like food prepping stuff uh, and you're cooking meat, try to cook it pretty gently. But, you know, if you're having a meal that you are cooking for the sake of it being delicious, uh, you know, maybe once or twice a week, yeah, you go ahead and put a hard sear on it. But I wouldn't recommend that being how you cook your meat all the time. All right, so Luke asks Eric, uh, if strength and size gains come back relatively quickly after a cut, parentheses, assuming this is true based on my own experience, but feel free to lambast me if this is indeed a false premise, close parentheses, is there any benefit to cutting at a less conservative pace in order to spend a higher percentage of the year in a lean bulking phase? This is a very good question. Um, starting out, I'm going to leave strength out of it, um, just because of all the neuromuscular aspects involved there. Um, I, I want to keep it kind of just in the realm of body composition. Cause I think it's most directly related to the question here. Um, so the question basically is, sh should I speed up my cut so I can get back into a bulking phase and ultimately, you know, positively influence lean mass accretion over time? Um, the first part that I would push back against is we have to be a little bit cautious about how aggressively we lose weight. Um, there, there is a balancing act. Of course, we want to make positive strides toward the goal. So we don't want to say that slower is always better, um, you know, because at a certain point, if, if you're losing weight slow enough, you're essentially not losing weight. It would just take forever. But the downside of going super aggressive uh, with a cutting phase is that it is probably going to lead to more loss of lean tissue. And so if the whole point of speeding it up is so we can get into a bulk, it doesn't really make sense to lose excessive lean mass just so we can get back into a lean mass building phase. I, I think we want to be mindful of maintaining as much lean mass as we can uh, during a fat loss phase. The second thing that I would push back against a little bit is the idea that, um, you know, lean body mass or muscle mass rebounds very quickly after uh, a weight loss attempt uh, or after weight loss is basically ended and you transition back into a caloric surplus. Um, so this was a, a really fun study that, that we did when I was in grad school, but, but we studied the initial changes in body composition after, uh, physique competition. So bodybuilding and physique categories. And so what we found was initially after competition, there's obviously some quick weight gain within the first few days, uh, which is almost exclusively a whole bunch of water and glycogen coming back. Um, not really much in terms of real lean tissue and really not much in terms of fat because you, you have to be in a hell of a surplus for two days to, to meaningfully, uh, you know, accrue a lot of fat tissue. I mean, there's a caloric content associated with putting on fat. Uh, so in a few days after a diet, we see a whole bunch of water and glycogen come back, but then we're pretty much at a stable, steady state. But what was really uh, kind of discouraging about it was within those first four to six weeks after competition, there does appear to be a preferential regain of fat mass rather than fat-free mass, um, which isn't ideal. And it kind of goes against, I remember when I first got into lifting and nutrition and stuff, everybody would be like, dude, after a fat loss phase, you are primed for growth and you're just going to put on muscle so rapidly, you're never going to believe it. And 
the the evidence doesn't support that. Uh, whether we're looking at lean people or obese people, trained or untrained, uh, what we do see is a preferential regain of fat in the initial uh, transition from a diet to a caloric surplus. Yeah, there, there are a lot of people who still say that too. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I, I get why on the surface level that seems like an appealing hypothesis, but you know the, the empirical evidence doesn't support it. And when you really dig into the theoretical rationale, it doesn't make sense. Um, just because putting on a bunch of lean mass from a biological perspective doesn't gain you much. It doesn't afford you much uh, when it comes to being resilient to future caloric deficits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, you're basically putting on this tissue that's calorically expensive to maintain uh, and, and not a very good source of energy if needed, uh, you know, during a prolonged uh, energy deficit. So even if you want to get back to kind of evolutionary theoretical roots of why we would regain weight after a diet, it doesn't really make sense to get out of a prolonged surplus and say, sweet, let's put on a bunch of muscle tissue or organ tissue. Get, get out of a prolonged deficit. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Um, but yeah, so I would push back against both of those things. No, th- th- that is a good point. And I never thought of it that way before. Like if we just assume physiology makes sense as like my undergrad physiology professor was very fond of saying. Uh, Yeah, I mean, like, humanity developed in, like, periods of cyclical famines. So, like, yeah, you you get fucking shredded, uh, which, you know, entails basically, like, being at a low level of starvation for a long period of time. Uh, And, you know, your your body doesn't function that much differently than it did when we lived on the savannah. Uh, and it's like, yeah, okay. Like you came very, very close to starvation. Like I can tell that because you're like fucking 4% body fat. Uh, so obviously like famine is a threat that exists in this organism's environment. And so like, yeah, what's it going to do when there are calories again? Is it going to put on fat so that like the next famine, which your body should suspect is around the corner because you just experienced one, should we put on fat to be able to cope with that? Or like, just say, fuck that. Like (laughs) one famine happened. What are the odds that another one is ever going to happen? Let's get fucking huge for like all of, all of the ladies on the Savannah. Like, no, that's, that's ridiculous. Yeah. You, you, when you reason your way through it, it doesn't really make sense on a deeper level. And it's also why you have to be really cautious about the overly simplistic, kind of mechanistic approach to physiology. So like, I'm sure there's probably, I don't know, 12 million articles out there that probably say like, oh, after a a cut, you know, insulin sensitivity is through the roof, which is going to shuttle all those beautiful nutrients to your muscle tissue. And you're going to explode, you know, and put on all this muscle really rapidly. Where else does insulin shuttle nutrients to? Just far, out of curiosity. As far as I know, literally nowhere. Um, <laughs> or, or maybe fat cells. <laughs> but yeah, like y- you'll see people who take like a little granule of a mechanism and be like, wait a minute, fat loss, increased insulin sensitivity, shuttle stuff toward muscle. You're probably going to get absolutely huge and gain no fat. But it's like that that doesn't seem to pan out. It doesn't seem to be the way it works. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like you said, that little pesky thing that you know, also fat cells like that too. Um, th- that's something to deal with. But um, so, so there's a couple things to keep in mind there um, when, when it comes down to this theoretical idea of a super fat, fast cut 
and then transitioning to, uh, you know, to get a quick rebound of muscle gain. So my preferred approach, because uh, a lot of people have these goals in mind, right? A lot of people do bulk and cut cycles and a lot of people want to spend the majority of the time building muscle, but also being at a body fat level they feel good about. And I, I think a preferred approach to that is we want to minimize the loss of lean mass or fat-free mass that occurs during the cut instead of banking on a big rebound and kind of assuming we're going to gain some quick muscle when we transition out of the diet. So a conservative rate of weight loss is going to be great for minimizing that loss of fat-free mass. Um, but you know, I do encourage people to minimize the time that they spend cutting, especially early in their lifting career. So, you know, what I generally encourage people to do is instead of speeding up your cut, get to a body fat that you're happy with, uh, with a nice conservative rate of weight loss. So just cut once and do it right. Get down to a body fat where, where you feel good in terms of your health, your performance, your body image, for whatever reason you're cutting, get down to a body fat that makes sense long term and then bulk from there transition into a muscle building phase and be committed to that bulk for the long haul. Um, you know, basically say, okay, I'm happy with this body fat. I'm going to take my time with it. I'm not going to be super aggressive in that early, uh, rebound phase, because like I said, preferentially, you're probably more likely to quickly gain fat rather than quickly gain muscle. So it's a slow cut and then a nice gradual bulk where you're not eating at, you know, enormous surplus Get yourself a good two, three, four hundred calorie surplus. Do some solid resistance training. Gauge your rate of weight gain from there and move forward. But what I really encourage people to avoid is getting stuck in what I call the the wheel spinning zone, which is basically rapid cut, rapid bulk, rapid cut, rapid bulk, losing fat free mass during these rapid cuts, doing these rapid bulks, and initially preferentially regaining fat mass. I can't think of a worse way to do it. That is basically oscillating back and forth between extreme cuts and extreme bulks. Uh, unequivocally, the worst way you could possibly do it from my perspective. If you're drug free. <laughs> I, I should, there should be like a, a banner that just runs across the screen whenever for all content that I'm speaking about with physiology that, that just says, assuming you're drug free. Cause like, you throw drugs into the mix, we can fix every problem. Yeah, like I, I'm sure people are going to, if we didn't give that caveat, someone would tweet us like that famous off-season picture of Dennis Wolf and just be like, yeah, where's your God now? Like, <laughs> yeah, <he> got fucking huge. <laughs> you know, that's been one of the one of the great things about um, metabolic adaptation is I talk about it a lot. I write about it a lot. And I'm always kind of under the assumption we're talking about drug-free, not because I give a damn about people taking drugs, but my background is in publishing peer-reviewed research. You're not just going to throw out in a peer-reviewed paper like, well, I don't know, are you on trend? <laughs> like, that's not, how we, <laughs> that's not how we study physiology in sports science. It's yeah. like, you know, footnote, by the way, if you're on trend, ignore this. <laughs> so like... <laughs> Every now and then. <laughs> oh, man. Like, so you'll occasionally see in limitation, like limitation sections, like, uh, you know, all of our subjects purported to be drug free, but like, you know, we didn't have the funding to drug test all of them. So like, do with that what you will. If there was a reverse of that, where it's like, uh, you know, we had drug free subjects, 
We don't know whether these results generalize to other populations, such as youth, elderly, or people on like four grams a gear. (laughs) (laughs) If if they just started treating that as like a special population that like maybe research doesn't generalize to. Doesn't pertain to (laughs) aggressive insulin abuse. Um, But no, so like I, I get in the habit of just kind of assuming that's the standard caveat. And then like someone will ask me a question about like, so what happens with metabolic adaptation if I'm taking these 11 drugs? And I'm like, oh, well, then you solved all of it. <laughs> like, then you're fine. Like, you have pharmacologically altered everything I just spoke about. So, like, I don't know. It's probably fine. But where am yeah. I going to find the research to validate that? Yeah, one of, one of the problems with prolonged deficits might be a decrease in testosterone levels. If you're putting, like, a gram and a half of test into your system every week, Congratulations, you don't have problems with testosterone levels. <laughs> yeah, it's just like <laughs> taking testosterone levels, thyroid hormones, thermogenics that are way more potent than thyroid hormones, like, <laughs> you know, everything else. Uh, so, yeah, th- that, that's certainly a big caveat to keep in mind. Okay, uh, moving on. Uh, this one is from a user who goes by the name of One Quick Trick. Uh, and the question is... What is the role of flywheel training strictly for hypertrophy? Uh, if it has a positive effect, should it be used as an adjunct training method, or should we ditch conventional weight training and use flywheel training instead? Uh, yeah, so um, the research that exists to this point comparing flywheel training to just kind of like more conventional resistance training basically finds that the effects are similar uh, with regards to both strength and hypertrophy. There was a, I believe, meta-analysis that came out something like three or four years ago um, that made it look like flywheel training was just like the next evolution of resistance training. They were like, look, compared to other forms of training, it makes you super jacked, super strong. Uh, And it turns out that the people who did it just like um, completely misrepresented or botched their inclusion criteria and included a bunch of train or, 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 or like several studies that compared flywheel training to no training. Turns out it's a lot better than no training. But like when you pull all that together and like write it up as if you're comparing it against like conventional training, it's not completely accurate. Anyways, um, so the stuff that does actually compare flywheel training against like conventional resistance training tends to find similar strength gains, similar hypertrophy. Um, doesn't seem to be better, doesn't seem to be worse, doesn't seem to be particularly special, uh, which checks out. Like, it makes sense. Like, ultimately, you know, you're you're trying to uh, stress the muscle and put enough tension on it to provoke a hypertrophic response, and you can do that with flywheel training. Um, so, yeah, like, it's fine. Um, I would say that... Uh, there are distinct pros and cons of flywheel training compared to just like conventional resistance training. One of the pros, or really like the biggest pro by far, is that it takes up way, way less space. So, um, you know, if you don't want to go to the gym or like can't go to the gym for some reason and you don't have a whole room in your home that you can dedicate to a home gym setup uh, and you just get like a flywheel device, it's going to take up way, way less space. So that's a huge plus. You can make it work in pretty much any living situation. Um, so that's good. Uh, 
A con, though, is that you do have to be kind of creative for some exercises you want to do. So, like, lower body training, very simple and straightforward. Uh, there's, like, a little handle attachment that comes with pretty much any flywheel device that you could use for deadlifts, RDLs. Um, you can get, like, a harness that you can clip the the cord to to do squats, like something that would feel very similar to a belt squat. Uh, so that's good. Pulling exercises like rows, very straightforward, easy to do. Um, same thing with like biceps training, but uh, like training pressing exercises or training uh, like triceps, uh, not nearly as straightforward. Like you would need to get kind of creative to make it work. Um, and also like you're... You're limited in exercise variety to some degree. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, simply exposing your muscles to an appropriate stimulus and being consistent with it is probably the biggest, not just probably, it's for sure the biggest and most important thing for getting stronger, building muscle. Uh, but if you're a really, really advanced trainee who's like, you know, maybe trying to get some marginal gains in uh, like regional hypertrophy by including more exercise variety in your training, that's going to be a lot more challenging if all you have access to is a flywheel device. Uh, so what what I would say is that um, I, I still think that like, you know, probably the best way to maximize hypertrophy if you're um, like a reasonably advanced lifter uh, is to get a gym membership and, you know, be able to use all of the equipment that would be available to you. Uh, if you're someone who's, you know, brand new to lifting or maybe like early intermediate, I definitely think you can get the job done with flywheel training and get pretty similar results to what you'd get with free weights. Uh, and another thing that I would say is one of the things that we've talked about several times since, uh, gym closures started with COVID-19 is you can do really, really solid upper body training with either just body weight or with very, very limited equipment, but lower body training is uh, a lot more challenging to do without some sort of external resistance. And lower body training is very, very easy to do with a flywheel device. So if you're someone who you know either can't go back to the gym for a while or just doesn't want to, and you don't have room in your apartment for like a full home gym setup uh, or your house for a full home gym setup, uh, just doing like body weight training for upper body and getting a flywheel device for lower body training would be a great way to approach training from like a very minimalist perspective. Um, so anyway, yeah, like in general, I think it's fine. I don't think it's notably better or worse for most people in most circumstances. So, uh, John Luca asks Eric, is it necessary to cycle caffeine for its ergogenic effects? Uh, if cycling is necessary, how often should I cycle it and for how long? You know, this topic, I saw it in the, the inbox and I could have sworn we had talked about it before, but I couldn't find it. So I figured for good measure, might as well hit the highlights again, because uh, it is a question that gets asked all the time. Uh, and Greg, please do feel free to interject and correct me or interrupt me because I'm largely using an article you wrote for Mass as kind of the basis here for, for uh, much of the answer. But you wrote a great study back in the day. It's probably probably a couple years ago at this point, right? Uh, yeah, I think it might have been volume one. Yeah, so um, that was back in, in the 
it was really awful for a while there. I wasn't part of mass and, and the readers had to put up with that and, and live through that phase. Uh, a lot of good articles at that time frame, but, but yeah, it's kind of a, a dark part of mass's history is the fact that I wasn't initially involved with it. But back before I became part of the team, uh, you reviewed a study by Lara and colleagues in 2019. Um, and it was called time course of tolerance to the performance benefits of caffeine. And the really nice thing about this study was they actually addressed the question directly, which is kind of not the case for this research question. So a lot of studies that try to make inferences about do we habituate to the effects of caffeine, they'll recruit people and say, hey, do you, do you consume caffeine a lot or not? And kind of divide them into groups, the people who consume plenty and the people who don't. And then they'll test some performance outcome in response to caffeine and say, okay, did the responses look different when we compare the people who typically consume caffeine to people who are caffeine naive? So that's kind of the, the approach most studies take because it's a lot easier and less labor intensive and resource intensive. Um, but it doesn't really directly affect, uh, address a question that is longitudinal in nature, mm -hmm. which is basically if we continue keep uh, taking it, does the effect become diminished or even fully wear off over time? And I've often said, you know, like there was a time there where I flirted with the idea of being a professor and going and starting a lab. And without question, like I had a short list of studies that I'd want to do right out of the gate. And this is a question that I think we have a lot to learn about. I, I think it would be very easy to set up a study where you looked at really frequent testing on like a dynamometer, looking at muscle force output um, over a long series of not just habituation to caffeine, but I'm also interested in learning more about the time course of withdrawal and resensitization, right? So what, what do you think your dropout rate on that study would be? A million percent. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's theoretical. I don't have to worry about these logistical considerations, Greg. Uh, I took a different job, as you know. But but no, like we really would benefit from having more longitudinal studies where, you know, we, we do an exercise intervention that's, low, you know, not going to induce a lot of soreness so we can do it frequently, but get an idea of specifically looking at strength-related outcomes or power-related outcomes, you know, how quickly do we habituate what kind of withdrawal symptoms do we see in the days after we remove caffeine? Uh, and then what's the time course of becoming resensitized to, to caffeine? You know, so do you have to abstain for three days or, or three weeks to, to kind of get back it to the point where you maximize your response? A lot of those questions we don't have really good answers to, but what they found in the study by Lara and colleagues was there was some modest tolerance that was developed over about a 20-day period. Um, and they used a variety of different performance outcomes. So some were aerobic. I think one was like a, a high-intensity cycling. I don't think they used anything that would really mimic resistance training. Um, but it, it did show that there was a general, um, a, a general appearance of tolerance developing. But the, the fact that the, the magnitude of the effect diminished a little bit at certain points in the timeline doesn't mean that the effect completely disappeared. And that's really important to keep in mind. It wasn't like, yeah, you get to use caffeine for 11 days and then you're screwed and it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And, and to note, like that study ran for a month. Um, 
And so it, it's entirely possible that if people, you know, continued using caffeine every day for a year, like maybe full tolerance would develop, but also like using a fixed amount of a substance every day for a month is like a pretty long time for tolerance to develop, one would think. Uh, and, and so like basically what they found is that the ergogenic effects of caffeine over the course of about a month were decreased by like maybe 50-60%, give or take. Uh, and, and I don't think it's completely crazy to assume that that would basically extend out into perpetuity. Uh, it, it may or may not, but I, I do sort of suspect that a month is plenty of time for people to develop the amount of tolerance that they're going to develop. Yeah. And another thing to keep in mind, I talked about how there were limitations to the more standard approach to this question, which is just grouping habitual users versus non-users. But that doesn't mean we can't get some inferences from those studies. And with those studies, generally speaking, they tend to indicate that whether you're naive to caffeine or a habitual user, we still see pretty similar ergogenic effects among those groups. Mm -hmm. And so when you triangulate that evidence, it looks like some tolerance or some habituation might occur, but it that, that's very different from saying that the ergogenic effect entirely disappears. Mm -hmm. So if you're someone who's worried about this tolerance developing um, and you want to really make sure you're maximizing your use of caffeine, there's a few different options that you have. The first option is just to not worry about it because regular caffeine users seem to pretty reliably have ergogenic responses to caffeine. So that, that's a very simple, straightforward way to approach it. Uh, another option, if you're really worried about it still, is to just only use caffeine when you need it. You know, So if you only use it here and there, maybe a couple workouts per week, probably not going to develop a great deal of tolerance or habituation to that because of how intermittent your caffeine use is. Uh, and then another option would be if you want to every now and then maybe take a week or two off of caffeine use to, to just restore that sensitivity. And, you know, if I was someone who was really worried about it and wanted to incorporate that into a typical training schedule, it could be as simple as just saying, Hey, during your deload, no caffeine. Right. So then you're going to do a block of training and maybe there's a little tolerance that develops over time. But if you're kind of taking the downside of caffeine abstention during your deload, you're probably not really losing anything in the trade-off there aside from, you know, maybe a slightly less present less pleasant deload week. But I would say that would be another option is to just kind of strategically, I mean, would, would you think that maybe a week or two off would be sufficient in order to kind of restore some of that uh, sensitivity? I would think, uh, I mean, the handful of times that I, that I have tried to go off caffeine day one sucks, day two sucks, but a little less by like day three or four, I feel pretty normal. Um, so yeah, I, I think a week would be plenty, but I, I mean, obviously I'm not like testing performance every day across that time, but in terms of like, uh, psychological withdrawal symptoms, they seem to be gone within a week. So I kind of assume that like physiological like performance withdrawal is would be done within a week and so like sensitivity would come back i don't know if that's true or not but but that's how i feel in my heart sometimes science is more about feeling than knowing you know <laughs> i do wonder so when we first started hanging out 
uh, you were kind of busy. You often consume caffeine. I wonder if at any point during that time, if you just went cold turkey, I wonder if you would have been hospitalized <laughs> by the withdrawal symptoms. I doubt it. Um, I would... I've just never seen anyone so <laughs> so fully dependent on caffeine. Yeah. So um, if I ever did have like a chill weekend, uh, which was uncommon, but like sometimes it happened, uh, I would I would occasionally go without caffeine like on a Saturday. Um, and honestly, I got to say, I don't get that bad of withdrawal symptoms from caffeine. Like... Uh, I'll start developing a headache around 3 or 4 p.m. Take an Advil, goes away. Uh, I, I do feel, like, more lethargic and less focused. But honestly, like, even when I'm using uh, probably inadvisable amounts of caffeine, if I go off it for a day, like, it's really, really not that bad. That's good. Yeah. Okay, so we've got a couple questions that got upvoted a lot in the Reddit subgroup. We only have time to get to one of them this episode, but we absolutely guarantee next episode we'll get the other one, right? So so the first one uh, that, that we're going to answer, it's our final Q&A for the day. It's by Pavlovian. Uh, that, that's the username. And the question is, I'm curious about what the literature has to say on the subject of trigger points or muscle knots. I've heard a variety of things on the subject, ranging from they are the root of every muscular pain issue to they don't exist. Anecdotally, I've personally had a number of times over the years where applying some rather intense self-massage to, to areas with a tender, tense spot in a muscle has provided some dramatic and lasting pain relief. What does the literature say? Are trigger points real or have I been duped by big placebo? Yeah, so uh, first things first, over in the Stronger by Science subreddit, uh, Jason, our on-staff physical therapist, and uh, my buddy Nathan Jones, who's also a physical therapist, both have already given very, very good answers to this question in the subreddit, if you would like to check them out. Um, and what I'm going to say isn't all that much different from <laughs> what they said, but uh, hey, you know... Uh, podcast is a different means of communication than Reddit. So uh, answer it here as well. So first off, I'm going to address the question of uh, people claiming that they're the root of every muscular pain issue. That's obviously ridiculous. Sometimes you strain a muscle too hard and tear it off the bone. You know, that's not a trigger point. Sometimes uh, you get in a fight with a jilted ex-lover and they chop through a muscle with a machete you can't chalk that up to, to muscle knots or trigger points. So like, obviously there are roots of muscular pain issues that go beyond this. So absolutely ridiculous premise. Um, but to, to actually answer the question, like what are trigger points? Do they exist? Do they matter? Uh, and for that, I think it depends how you define like a mus a muscular knot or a trigger point. Um, and there are, various specific definitions that people use from time to time. So uh, one of the common ones that people will talk about is myofascial adhesions. It's the idea that um, like basically the, the fascia that surrounds and runs through the muscle uh, will kind of like get stuck together almost. So um, like fibers and fascicles can't slide past each other the way that one would want them to. And that like forms a knot. Um, 
And my understanding is that that can theoretically happen. And like one of one of the reasons actually that like range of motion tends to decrease with age uh, is that like co- collagenous tissues um, do kind of like grow outgrowths and like stick to each other more. Um, so like that's something that can theoretically happen, but I don't know the relevance of it on kind of like a small micro scale uh, in like healthy younger people. Um, the other kind of mechanistic explanation or like definition for trigger points that I see people put forth from time to time is that it's like a local ischemic crisis. So basically, uh, in a small region of the muscle, um, blood flow might become restricted. And then, uh, like due to that ischemia, the tissue becomes inflamed and then it swells a little bit and that can further cut off blood flow. Uh, and then they term this an energy crisis where it basically feeds into itself. You get some ischemia, you get some inflammation that causes more ischemia that causes more inflammation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and my understanding is that there is actually some evidence that that can exist where basically like when they do, uh, identify like very, very well-defined trigger points in some individuals, they can go in there and like you know, basically study that tissue and see if there are like signs and symptoms of ischemia. And like, sometimes there is, but the question is, you know, that maybe can theoretically happen, but is that the case in every knot or trigger point in the human body? I would think probably not like, you know, maybe that's like a root cause of some of them, but I I doubt that's like a universalized phenomenon. Another thing just to note about trigger points is that uh, if you go to like a massage therapist or some or something and they say like, oh, you have a lot of knots, you have a lot of trigger points, like you probably do because like everyone does, um, but also you shouldn't put like too terribly much stock in their like specifically diagnosed trigger points where like they point out to you where, where they all are. Um, there's some research looking at the uh, inner rater reliability of identifying muscle knots and trigger points. And it's really bad. Um, so, you know, one person who's theoretically an expert feels your muscles, like finds some tight spots, uh, kind of like marks where they are. Or, or like identifies where they are. And then like another person does the same thing. Maybe they find a couple of the same ones. Maybe they find some different ones, but very, very poor iterator reliability. Um, so anyway, it, it's, it's a phenomenon that does exist. Um, but it's like, it's kind of, it's kind of a slippery phenomenon, I suppose. Uh, and I think it makes the most sense to simply think about it as a sensory phenomenon, Um, Because that very much clears up the question of whether they exist or not. Like, do you have small spots in your muscle that feel tight, feel uncomfortable, uh, and feel tender if you put pressure on them? Like, yes, everyone does. Uh, What's the cause of them? Is it an ischemic energy crisis? Is it myofascial adhesions? Who gives a shit? I personally don't give a shit. Uh, And I think the the ultimate question is... um, you know, if if they exist and if I'm defining them as just like a sensory phenomenon of like an area of muscle that feels uncomfortable, they do exist. You know, then the question is like, what can you do about them? And like, you know, is it worthwhile to kind of try to massage them out or like roll around on a foam roller or lacrosse ball? 
And I think like the most simple, straightforward answer is like, if it helps you feel better, then like, sure, do it. Um, You know, and maybe it gives you lasting relief, which uh, the the story Pavlovian recounted sounds like it did. uh, It did and has caused him like some lasting relief. And so that's good. If it doesn't, and it's one of those things where like, you know, maybe you just have a knot that occurs in your hamstrings all the time. And if you spend like two minutes working on it before a workout, it goes away and your workout feels better. Like whatever, two minutes of like maintenance work before a workout, that's fine. You can do that. Um, If it's one of those things where like you have a lot of knots that are super uncomfortable and either take like a super long time to work out before you can start training or they're like causing a lot of discomfort and significantly impacting your quality of life, you know, go to a professional about that, like hit up a physical therapist, see if they can do anything for it. Um, But yeah, I mean, in in terms of like, do they exist and what can you do about them? Like, yeah, they probably exist. And if you do something and it feels good, keep doing it. Um, But yeah, I I think that the, uh, I I basically think they've been mythologized too much. Um, And, and it's, it's one of those things where like, if there's something that you can do a little something to give yourself some relief, help you feel better, that's nice. Uh, And if it becomes a problem that you can't manage on your own, seek, uh, seek professional help. That sounds reasonable. Now to play us out, we are, we're at the end of the episode here. Um, I'm going to be honest. I'm looking at the outline. I have no idea where you're going with this. Uh, so I will just present it and, and I will excitedly follow along. So carcinization, um, go. Yeah. So, uh, I learned about this recently and, uh, I had never heard of it, but it's like a crazy example of convergent evolution. So convergent evolution is the idea that like, if something generally works from like a Darwinian fitness perspective, it might evolve, you know, similarly over time. So uh, a good example of that is among the mammals, like uh, placentals and marsupials were separated, like all of the marsupials were in Australia, the placentals were elsewhere. But like, there are a lot of very similar uh, placental and marsupial animals that evolved completely separately. But like, the evolutions they evolved like helped them uh, fill some sort of like ecological niche, um, you know, like mammals and fish evolving to swim. So you know, well, fish evolving to swim first, and then like mammals winding up with like similar adaptations, like whales and dolphins, like you know the like tails to flip water out of the way and like create pressure differentials to move through the water. Like yeah, it works. Like that's that's convergent evolution. Anyway, so carcinization is the concept of convergent evolution in crabs. And it's crazy because like a lot of the crabs out there in the world aren't actually crabs. So there there is uh, like a phylum of crabs, true crabs. And that's like most of the crabs you would come across. But the general crab shape has evolved at least five different times. So one of them was the true crabs. Um... I think, uh, what's it called? Decapodal arthropods, like arthropods with like 10 appendages, two of them being claws. Um, so like true crabs, that's like the, the largest group of them. But then the hairy stone crab, 
uh, is another very crab-looking thing that did not evolve along with crabs. Uh, it evolved from another arthropod. Porcelain crabs, That's there's like a whole group of them. There's like 10 or 12 different types of porcelain crabs. Look just like crabs. They're not actually crabs. Um, king crabs, this was the one that freaked me out. So like, uh, if you've ever eaten crab legs, you've probably either eaten snow crab, which is an actual crab, it's a true crab, or some sort of king crab. Uh, probably the red king crab. That's, I think, what most crab legs come from. Not actually a crab. It's a different decapodal arthropod. That's a scandal. Yeah. And there's there's like multiple different kinds of king crabs. Uh, they probably evolved from hermit crabs, which also aren't actually crabs. Uh, and then coconut crabs, which uh, are fucking huge. If you want some nightmare fuel and you're not crazy about crabs, just like Google image search coconut crabs, they can be up to a meter long. Um, what? Yeah, they're enormous. There's, there, there was like this famous picture of a coconut crab just like chilling out on a trash can. And it's like the same height as the trash can. Anyway, coconut crabs, also not actually a crab. Um, so anyway, like the general crab shape has, has evolved convergently at least five times. Uh, and that is the process of carcinization. And I think that is very, very neat. I gotta be honest, that's a lot more crab content than I bargained for, and I don't regret it at all. I mean, that was, <laughs> that that's pretty interesting. Um, the first thing I'm gonna do when we finish recording, I gotta see some of these coconut crabs. I've shown you coconut crabs before. I must have forgotten. One time during family dinner, we were talking about like, various creatures that are like way bigger than you'd think they would be. And I remember like the bat. Creepy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think like your, your brain just got so hung up on that Indonesian bat. That's like four feet long that you just like tuned out the rest. But yeah, we talked about coconut crabs that night too. Yeah. That bat was insane. It, it was a bat that was like the size of an adolescent human being. It's not good. It's not good. Um, okay. Well, I think that does it for, uh, for today's episode. Um, like we promised that, that second Reddit question, we are going to answer in the next episode. Um, now if you want to become part of the conversation, be sure to join our public Facebook group or pop into our subreddit, check the, uh, the description of this episode. We will have a link to both of those as always. Thank you for joining us and we'll be back in a couple weeks. Thank you for listening to the stronger by science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.